0: Well, today we continue our series from the Old Testament. My goal has been to preach a couple of messages from most of the books in the Old Testament simply to give you an appreciation for the Old Testament and the stories that are there. Now, in doing that, we have come through the book of Isaiah, but I did not feel that I could leave Isaiah without looking at chapter number 53, the chapter of the suffering servant. In Jewish theology, chapter 53, the chapter of the suffering servant, represented the state of Israel. Now, I appreciate that interpretation. However, I have some difficulty reconciling the text with that position. For instance, it says in Isaiah chapter 53 that the suffering servant is without guilt, but that is never said of Israel. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 4, the prophet wrote, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. And so the suffering servant then is without guilt, but the state of Israel is not. Another issue is that it says in Isaiah 53 that the servant suffered silently... Well, that is not true of Israel. Israel certainly has suffered, but they have not suffered silently, nor should they. We should be constantly reminded of the threat of anti-Semitism, so they should not be silent, and they are not silent. In chapter 53, verse number 10, it says, "...if he would render himself as a guilt offering." Well, Israel did not atone for the sins of mankind. And then in Isaiah 53 verses 8 and 9, it speaks of the subject's death. But the state of Israel is very much alive. In fact, it is the center of the world today. All our eyes are focused on what is going on in the state of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 53 verse number 8, he says that the suffering servant died for my people. Well, Israel did not die for Israel. So, when I look at the interpretation, I cannot reconcile it with the text itself. It is my belief that Isaiah chapter 53 is a prophecy concerning the promised Messiah. And in fact, that was in ancient Jewish theology the position that they took. One commentator wrote, Isaiah 53 cannot refer to the nation of Israel, nor to Isaiah, nor to Moses, nor another prophet. Of whom does Isaiah speak? He speaks of the Messiah, as many ancient rabbis concluded. So today, we are going to look at the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Take your Bibles, turn with me. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse number 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him." He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. The subject of suffering always brings questions, and most of them remain unanswered. For instance, there is the question, is God able to suffer? Does God suffer? In fact, that was a discussion in the early days of the church. Is God capable of suffering? Now, it was concluded that God extends to us His mercy and His grace in our suffering, but He does not join with us in suffering. There were a couple of reasons for that. First of all, they concluded because God is immutable. The Bible says, For I, the Lord, do not Change So God is an unchanging God. He is immutable. Therefore, emotional ups and downs would not be compatible to His unchanging nature. Another reason they made that conclusion is that God is self-existent. He is sufficient. He is complete within Himself. Therefore, He does not need to share in pain or in joy or in suffering. But... God did suffer. His suffering, however, is not as the result of Him being a victim of suffering. He chose to suffer. God chose to suffer. The Bible says in Psalm 115, verse number 3, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Now, folks, you and I suffer, but we do not choose to suffer. See, we suffer from disease, but we do not choose disease. We suffer from death, but we do not choose death. So our suffering then is involuntary. We do not choose to suffer. However, God suffers because He chose to suffer. Now, you might say, well, now how do you know that God suffers? Well, the Bible says the Holy Spirit does. The Scripture says in Ephesians Chapter 4, verse number 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The word grieve literally means to cause pain, to distress. And so then the Holy Spirit is caused pain, is suffering, is distress. How does that come about? Well, you and I cause it. That's what he is saying. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not cause pain for the Holy Spirit. How do we bring about pain for the Holy Spirit? When we are disobedient to God. Folks, whenever you and I choose to be disobedient to God, as a result of that, we bring pain to the Holy Spirit. Whenever we are sinfully angry, the Bible says that that grieves the Holy Spirit. Whenever we live a life that is ungrateful, then we pain the Holy Spirit. Whenever we neglect or ignore the Holy Spirit, then we cause pain. Folks, that's the reason that it is so important when you come to church and the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart that you are responsive to the Holy Spirit because if not, then you grieve the Holy Spirit. See? Sometimes people say, well, boy, I just sensed the presence of God in the service today. It is my belief that largely the Holy Spirit is able to work and to do His work in our midst when we are obedient to Him. But when we are disobedient to Him, then we grieve and we quench the Holy Spirit. So we know then that the Holy Spirit suffers. We know that the Son suffers. Look at verse number 3 of our text. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised and we did not esteem Him. We know that Jesus suffered while He was here on earth. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane. You've read the story of, of uh, His time of prayer there. And, and the Bible says that while He was there, He's under enormous pressure as He prayed. He's facing the cross. And he He prayed, He's pleading with the Father. Father, if there's some other way for man to be saved, then remove this cup from Me. And He went back to the Father again and, and again. And the Bible says that He was under enormous pressure as He prayed there. And He sweat great drops of blood. So we know that He suffered when He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that He suffered on the cross. He suffered physically. We understand because we have read about the physical suffering of dying on the cross. He also suffered spiritually on the cross. It was there that He cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? You see, all of my sins and all of your sins were placed on Jesus. And the Bible says that when our sins were placed on Him, He who was without sin, our sins were placed on Him. And so the Father turned His face from His Son and He cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? So Jesus the Son suffered. Now then, if any member of the Trinity suffered, then the Father suffered. If the Holy Spirit suffered, if the Son suffered, then the Father suffered. So there are questions. Can God suffer? Yes. God suffers because He chooses to join us in suffering. But then there is the suffering of man, and that that raises questions about God. For instance, we are told that God is omnipotent, that He has all power. We are told that He is all-loving. Well, if God loves me, and He has all power, why doesn't He do something? And, and I think that by and large, people have concluded that God probably is loving, but that He does not have power, not all powerful. So there are questions about God. For instance, about His presence, where is God during those times of suffering in one's life? That is the question that Jews asked during the Holocaust when six million Jews were killed. Where is God? Where is God to allow this to happen? That was the the continuing question. Where is God? What, What about His presence? As Christians, we ask the same question. During times of suffering, we ask the question, where is God? The Apostle Paul wrote about being in prison. He mentions that he received 39 lashes, that he was three times beaten, that he was shipwrecked. And so the question then is, well, where is God when all this is taking place? Here is a man who is committed to God. Where is God when he is suffering? The same question is asked today in Christians being martyred around the world. You know, we don't understand really do not grasp the fact that more Christians are being martyred today today than in the first 2,000 years of Christianity combined. I mean, there, there, there is an attack on Christianity today around the world that is unprecedented in Christian history. And so we ask the question, where is God? When all of these people are dying, when they are being martyred because of a commitment to Jesus Christ, where is God in all of this? Does He not care? Is He simply indifferent when man suffers? When there is sickness, when there is illness, does He not care? My sister was so committed to the Lord, far, far more committed to the Lord than I could ever be. And she had cancer, and we watched her die, as she withered away and went to be with the Lord. And uh, there is the question, does God not care? I'm sure that there are some of you, and you've watched your loved ones die, or you even now see some of your loved ones suffering disease. Is it that God does not care? There are some of you who would say, does not God not care that my marriage is falling apart? But I pray, I seek the Lord, I, I go to church, I read my Bible, I do those things, and, and yet it seems there's nothing I can do. My marriage is coming apart. Does God not care? What about the disasters? We've seen the tsunamis. We, we've seen the hurricanes. We've seen the suffering in Haiti. We, we saw the tragedy in Arizona and so forth. Does, does God not care about that? The thing is, is that as, as we consider suffering, it always raises questions. And many of them are not answered for us. As I look at this passage of Scripture, I also see that when the servant suffered, he suffered in silence. The suffering servant suffered in silence. Jesus was perfect, but he suffered criticism. In verse number 3, he was despised and forsaken of men. He was despised. Isn't that hard for you to get hold of that Jesus who was perfect, who absolutely loved mankind, who never did anything to harm anyone, and yet the Bible says that he was despised? John Piper wrote the work of Mohammed is based on being honored, and he was referring to the cartoons that had uh, had been printed and the response to that and how that the adherence of 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 Islam, demand that he is respected. He goes on, and the work of Christ is based on being insulted. It's hard to understand, it's hard to grasp that Jesus is despised, that he is insulted. And then the, the reasons for which he is despised. For instance, he was despised for healing on the Sabbath, which was considered to be a violation of religious tradition. And the Scripture says in Mark 3, 2, And they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him. See, they were more concerned about their religious traditions being violated than they were the man suffering. They also despised him because of his claim of deity. And Jesus did claim to be God. You know, that separates him from other religious prophets and leaders and so forth. Jesus made the claim of him being deity. And so the Scripture says in Matthew 26, 65, Then the high priest tore his robe, saying, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. They despised him because of his claim of deity, and they said that he had blasphemed. They despised Him, they rejected Him, and that Jesus came to love and to save, rejected Him. The Scripture says in John 1, 11, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. He was rejected, and yet He was silent. When He was going through the suffering, He was silent. You'll notice in verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. The last line in that verse, so he did not open his mouth. So the Bible says that Jesus suffered, but he suffered in silence. He did not open his mouth. The Apostle Paul suffered also. He suffered criticism for his appearance. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, it says his personal presence is unimpressive. Now, that was one of the criticisms of the Apostle Paul. He didn't look like much. He doesn't look like a preacher to me. You know, we're not very proud of the way that he looks. His personal appearance is unimpressive. That was one of the criticisms. They also criticized him for his speech. They go on and said that his speech was contemptible. And the word contemptible means of no account to despise. And yet he was silent. He simply did not address it. They, they criticized him for his appearance. They criticized him for his speech. He just kept on speaking of Jesus best he could. Well, it seems to me that there is open season on Christians today. And uh, there's a great deal of criticism directed towards Christians today. For instance, if one is spiritual... If someone is really committed to the Lord, when I was growing up, they were said to be a goody two-shoes or a holy Joe or something of that nature. But it's become far more than that now. Now then, if you are really committed to the Lord and you're committed to the Word of God, then you are intolerant. You're narrow-minded. In fact, you are dangerous. You are dangerous today if you're really committed to the Lord. And then on the other hand, if you're not committed enough, you're a hypocrite. So what do you do? How how do you deal with it? Well, I believe probably the best response is that we live such a life to silence our critics, but that we do not respond to them. For instance, that's what Jesus did. The Bible says in John 8, 48, 49, I want you to look at this with me. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. He said, I don't have a demon. Now, what else did they accuse him of? That's a question. Being a Samaritan. They accused him of being a Samaritan. What did he say in regard to being a Samaritan? Because that is a racist accusation. He said nothing. He didn't answer it. He just went on about his business. He was silent. We don't have to defend ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, against unjust charges because God does that. But there, having said that, there is some criticism that is justified. There is some criticism that comes our ways that is justified. For instance... When we have religion without change, there's something wrong. So criticism is just. It is expected that if a person becomes a follower of Christ, that that person's life is changed. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in Second Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. If a person says that I am a Christian, it is expected there is a change in that person's life. And if there is no change in that person's life, then there is something wrong with that person's religion, and criticism then is just. When there is relationship without commitment, criticism is just. There are those who say, "Well, I'm, a, I am a." In a relationship with Jesus, I, I know Jesus. I was saved back when I was a boy. I was saved back when I was a girl. I have a relationship to Jesus. And yet there is no commitment in that person. Not anything about that person's life to suggest that they really know the Lord. Then that's a just criticism. See, I can, I can say that, that I am married. You know, I, I knew Linda, grew up with Linda, known her and so forth, and, and, uh, and, and I love Linda. But then if there's not anything in the way that I conduct my life to speak of my commitment to her, then there's something wrong with my profession. And therefore, criticism is just. When our religion becomes nothing but a routine and has no meaning, if it is just a ritual without meaning, then criticism is just. See, if I'm like the Pharisees and that I'm more concerned about the routine or the ritual than I am about the relationship with Christ, and there is something wrong with my religion. And there are people I, I would I would venture to say, I don't know, but I would venture to say probably most come to church on Sunday, but they don't worship the Lord. Let me ask you, do you now not for you to respond to, but do you worship God when you come? I mean, do you really worship Him? Do you worship the Lord? Or do you just come to the hour. or That's what you're supposed to do. It's become a routine for you. It's a ritual for you. There are many people who, who come to church, but they don't worship. There, there are many who pray, but there is no expectation. Do you really expect God to hear your prayers and do something when you pray? You say, when that is not there, then there is something missing. There is something wrong. But when our criticism is not just, then God defends us. Jesus never defended himself. But it's interesting to me who did defend him. For instance, Pilate defended him. He stood before Pilate. Charges were brought against him. Pilate interrogated him. And then the Bible says in Luke 23, 4, And Pilate said to the chief priest and the multitudes, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate looked at Jesus, he interrogated him, and he says, I I find no guilt in him. I, I don't know of anything that he has done. Pilate's wife defended Jesus. When Jesus was before Pilate, the Bible says, she sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. She said, that is a righteous man. She defended him. Judas defended him after Judas had betrayed him. The Bible says in Matthew twenty seven four, Judah said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He said, I have sinned because his blood is innocent. And the soldier who watched him die defended him. In Mark fifteen, thirty nine, and when the centurion who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus did not defend himself, he was silent. And it's interesting to me, those who did defend him. God is our defense against unjust charges. And the Bible says in 1 Peter 3.13, And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And then in 1 Peter 4, 14, he continues, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. As I look at this passage of Scripture regarding the suffering servant, the suffering servant is Jesus. I believe it is a response or a prophecy concerning the promised Messiah. And if you read through Isaiah chapter 53, reading it and applying it to the life of Jesus, then I think you have to conclude that this is a prophecy regarding the promised Messiah. It also is a reminder to me that Christians suffer. We are not exempt from suffering. Does God care? Does God care that you suffer? Is He simply withdrawn and uncaring and uninvolved? That's what we've been told. That's what the deist said. The the deist said that God created this world, He wound it up like a clock, He put it in orbit, and He withdrew from it to just let the world go on its own. Does God not care? Friend, He does care. He does care when you suffer. He does care when there is sickness. He does care when there is death. He does care when there is disappointment. He does care. I know that there are some of you today and you're going through a time of bereavement. I know some of you are going through a time of disappointment in your life, struggle in your life. And you might cry out, God, do you care? Yes, He cares. And if you ever wonder how much does God care then look at the cross, because that's how much God cares. God cares for you so much that He gave His Son Jesus to die on the cross to take your sin. And He sent the Holy Spirit to indwell you, that He might empower you. The Bible did not say that we would be exempt from suffering in our life, but it tells us that God will enable us to get through it as we depend upon Him. We suffer, but make sure when you do that you suffer for righteousness, that you suffer in innocence. Rabbi Zechariah said the cross somehow invades us as the only reasonable point of definition for a wounded world. It is the cross that is the point of definition for your suffering. Your suffering, look to Jesus there you'll find comfort. Our gracious Father and God, we come to you at this time, knowing, Lord, that there are those here and who worship with us by television who are suffering. And I pray, Father, that you might minister to them by the power of the Holy Spirit and your word, letting them know how very much you care. Father, I pray that you might intervene in some of their lives, that would be for their good and for Your glory. Father, I pray for those who have never come to know the Lord Jesus as Savior, that today they might. Bless this invitation time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand sing a hymn of invitation, an opportunity for you to respond to the Lord. Would you do it today? If you've never been saved, come trust Him today. There will be counselors here to pray with you. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love to have you as a part of our family. Stand with me, please, as we stand together. The choir sings as they sing, You come, I'll greet you as you do.